Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. September 2019 marks the 30th anniversary of the landfall of Hurricane Hugo on the coast of South Carolina. On today's program, we'll talk with Bo Peterson of Charleston's Post and Courier newspaper about the impact of the storm of the century. Later in the program, we'll delve into our archive for an interview I did with three people who survived the 16-foot storm surge of September 21st at Lincoln High School in McClellanville a supposedly safe shelter from the storm. And we'll listen again to conversations I had on the 20th anniversary of Hugo with then-Mayor of Charleston Joe Riley and with Dr. Susan Cutter of USC's Hazards and Vulnerability Research Institute. First, though, let me welcome Bo Peterson of The Post and Courier. Thanks, sir. There's some discussion as to when the storm actually hit South Carolina. Do the folks in Charleston have something set in stone? Set in stone is tough for that storm. It's usually reported as the night of uh, September 21st. We have reported it as the night of September 21st to 22nd. The hurricane makes landfall in the center of the eye, uh, comes ashore, and it was very close to midnight. And it was slightly north of Charleston on the Isle of Palms. Uh, roughly, yeah. Uh, I've heard at one point they came in a breach inlet, but, you know, the eye's a big thing. It, uh, yeah, it, mild palms is a good guess. What were you doing on September 21st and 22nd, 30 years ago? I was in the Austin Middle School gym in Somerville, South Carolina. Uh, I did not work for the Post and Courier at that time. I worked for the Gaston Gazette, the newspaper up outside of Charlotte. They sent me down to cover the storm because they thought it was going to Myrtle Beach, which would have been an issue for them. <laughs> Since I was down here anyway, they sent me to Charleston to cover, which I, I'd never been to Charleston before. Um, I, I made my way to Somerville, um, hunkered down there, and then I came into Charleston the next morning. Yeah. Well, you, you should have stayed at home because it went right up to Charlotte. <laughs> So. That, that's funny. Uh, uh, only this is 1989. My only mean of, means of communication with my bosses was public phones. The only public phone I could find was uh, outside of City Hall down on uh, down Broad Street, and, and there's a line there. <laughs> and I finally got on the phone to file the story and turned around. They said, well, "We can't take it. Though. We've powers out and we've had massive damage." Said you. I had a hurricane. You didn't have a hurricane. We've just gotten through Hurricane Dorian, which did not do much damage to South Carolina, certainly not anything like Hugo. But one of the interesting ironies of comparisons between the two storms is that Hugo very rapidly went up through South Carolina, knocked things crazy in North Carolina, Charlotte, Conover, and then up into Canada where it caused considerable damage, which is where Dorian ended up causing a lot of damage in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Folks wondered last week, before Dorian hit South Carolina, why the governor did what he did, causing evacuation. A lot of people were blasé. And I happened to be at a men's coffee group, and some newcomers were saying, ah, that storm's going to go somewhere. It's already determined the path. And those of us who had been here in 1989 said, wait a minute, Hugo wasn't headed for South Carolina. It was headed up the coast. It did a U-turn, came back south, and then headed due west right into the state. Caught between two other systems, and that's accurate. The the, the governor didn't have a whole lot of choice. There's a time that kind of time span that an evacuation has to take place. He made the call when he had to make the call, and... uh, you know, it's people's lives. If you're going to err, you're outside of caution. So you're in South Carolina. You're in Somerville because you had to evacuate Charleston. How long did you stay in the low country reporting on Hugo? Uh, only about a day or so because simply that um, the damage was so bad back in Gastonia, they called me back. Uh, I spent that day mostly down in uh, uh, in the historic district down on the peninsula, kind of routing around, trying to find stories and figure out uh, different ways to report damage uh, from, you know, working from a micro scale to give them a macro story back there. You know, in 89, communications we had then, it involved a lot of legwork, trying to give them a sense of what had happened down here. 
Well, I'd like to give our listeners a little background. Two weeks before Hugo hit South Carolina, it was formed off the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa. On September the 9th, it was identified first as a tropical depression, and then, of course, it strengthened as it crossed the Atlantic. And it was already a Category 5 before it hit Guadeloupe, St. Croix, and St. Thomas in, in the Virgin Islands. Interestingly, at sea, as it was coming across, the huge ocean liner, Queen Elizabeth II, tried to run south at full speed to get out of the storm. It couldn't. And it was a pretty rocky voyage. They had to empty the swimming pools so that the ship wouldn't shift one way or the other. And so much damage, it was taken out of service for, for a while. Hugo then came on, hit Puerto Rico. Everybody thought if it hit from Puerto Rico, it was going to go to Savannah. Well, that didn't happen. It went up the coast, and in advance of the storm, Governor Carol Campbell ordered an evacuation of the coast. And in those days, ordering evacuations were not nearly as enforced as as they are now. And I know because what did I do before Hugo came? My father-in-law asked me to go shut up their beach house down at Garden City on the 19th and 20th of September, (laughs) which I did. I met met no traffic going down except for a local policeman in Andrews at 2 o'clock in the morning who stopped me, said I was speeding through Andrews, and I told him I was going down advance of the hurricane, and he said, what hurricane? And he, he was very quickly followed by a highway patrolman who pulled up and said, what's going on? And I explained, and he he explained to the uh, local deputy that, yes, there was a hurricane coming in that let Mr. Edgar go down and take care of his property at Garden City. That would really be very nice. And it was a beautiful day on the 20th. It was an absolutely gorgeous day. And you did what you're supposed to do for a hurricane. It didn't do, didn't do much good because when I could get in there into Garden City for my father-in-law after the storm, there was nothing left on the first floor. And they lived wow. back on the inlet, on Merle's Inlet, not actually on the on the beach. But the storm had come in, the water was all the way to the second floor, and it got into the house and then blew out the, the down, downstairs walls. So my preparation didn't, didn't work. But anyway, when you were in Charleston, was it the governor's evacuation or the mayor telling everybody to get out that really forced people to, or made people move? Yeah, I, I don't really have a lot of information about that. Uh, what I do know is that it was a difficult decision for an awful lot of people because no one was expecting it to come in. It's sort of all of a sudden for them. Um, we, they, people just didn't have the awareness of the storms back then that they do now. And uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to who were, went through Hugo were surprised at just how strong that storm was when it came ashore. Images have stayed with me all my life, but the first images, the, the big scale image, and I finally got on the highway. Interesting story there. I got out of the shelter, and, and I asked one of the local policemen, uh, is it safe to go to Charleston? And he just shrugged. I mean, the, the police departments had lost contact with each other. Nobody knew what was going on. That's how serious the storm was. I got out on 26, coming into Charleston, and all of a sudden you'd hit like a little um, ramp area on the road, and you'd be able to look around. I could not believe the scale of devastation, and the first, the first emotional response, first visceral response to it, isn't even horror. It's kind of awe that the storms are so big, they're so powerful that you're kind of in awe of it a little bit. And I drove past a rest area with a tractor trailer rig, tossed over on the side on top of a car, got into town, and saw a woman picking away over rubble what used to be a house, uh, I guess looking for her belongings, which she could salvage. Uh, those kind of images, they sort of stay with you. They've stayed with me all my life. You were called back to Gastonia because of the damage up there. You drove through sections of the state where the timber was basically cut off about 10 or 12 feet above the ground, like somebody taking a giant scythe and, or lawnmower and just chopped everything down. Uh, hundreds of thousands of trees across that part of the state. It, it was odd. Uh, because of the route, uh, you'd go through a patch where it was that, that way that 
everything was down. You go through a patchwork, things are kind of relatively fine. And the further you got up 26, the more you saw that, that the worst of the storm was to the storm's north, which kind of stayed above 26 a lot. The damage was such to the the timber that Governor Campbell, Governor Carol Campbell, said that there had been enough timber destroyed in South Carolina to frame a home for every family in the state of West Virginia. And they tried to salvage what they could, and even what appeared to be usable lumber, because of pressure, the interior of the trees, the technical term was the annular separation of the rings, had made them too dangerous to saw. So what was going to be saw timber had to be made into pulpwood, too. So it was a tremendous salvage effort. One of the things people might not realize is you really can't insure timber losses, take it off on your income tax. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And the Francis Marion National Forest, people overuse the term devastated, but it was truly devastated. It it was raked. It it, it was flattened. The damage out there. The College of Charleston did a, a computer study a few years back where they, they ran a reanalysis of Hugo. If Hugo had come through straight into Charleston rather than just north of Charleston, what would have happened? And they came up with 4.5 million tons of tree debris, 4.5 million tons. Mm. The aerial pictures of the damage are still mind-boggling today. I know we've had terrible storms in this country and elsewhere since then, but the South Carolina coast from Charleston north was boats, houses. The front row at Garden City, the houses were back on the third row are in the inlet. There weren't any houses Mm -hmm. left on the front row. I did a story with uh, tugboat captains working the Cooper uh, during the storm because the submarines were busting loose at the Navy base then. And they talked about how at dawn you'd look over and there are cars sitting on top of houses. Yeah. And then, of course, one of the horrifying stories was, was which happened in McClellanville. The population had gone to Lincoln High School as a shelter. And the tidal surge came in and they were standing on tables, adults holding children up to keep them out of the water as the water came in th- to the building and rose. It was a very close call there. They had people up on the roof in case they had to actually bring people out of the building and, and put them up on the roof. The storm caused billions of dollars in, in damage in, in South Carolina and... 6.5 billion. 6.5 billion. And I didn't know about something called the Hurricane Severity Index which ranks storms that have come to the United States. And it was done two years ago. The last update was two years ago. But Hugo still ranked third in terms of severity. And that includes intensity, the size of the storm. They give them scores. Bo, what about, what about loss of life in South Carolina? Uh, the official figures we have, 35 people dead and 50,000 left homeless. Again, that that number, even even with what's happening elsewhere, that number is is staggering. Fifty thousand South Carolinians that were homeless. The response by the federal government in 1989 was not very good. In fact, FEMA got a huge black eye for its slowness. Mayor Joe Riley was very careful with what he said. Former Senator Fritz Hollings was not so kind. Uh, he described. The federal government's response referred to the to FEMA as a bunch of bureaucratic jackasses. So South Carolinians it, were, were pretty much on their own. Very much. And the help we finally did get uh, was due to Senator Hollings and Mayor Riley. I mean, they were people who pushed people there. People got up in front of people and got the help that did come. And yeah, mostly people were on their own. They were watching out for neighbor. And not just neighbors who knew each other very well, neighbors who happened to realize that we we're all in the same streets. People watch out for each other around here. There's there's nothing that touches that a lot of the rest of the country. South Carolina avoided something with Dorian, but the next one could happen, and we always have to be prepared. And I think that should be the lesson of Hugo. Bo Peterson from the Post and Courier, I'd like to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Next on Walter Edgar's Journal, 
We'll pull from our archive a discussion I had in 2001 at Lincoln High School in McClellanville with survivors of Hurricane Hugo, some of whom took shelter in that school when the storm hit the Lowcountry. I talked with Jennings Austin, principal of Lincoln High from 1983 to 1996, Charnett Moultrie who was a sophomore at Lincoln High School in 1989, and Thomas Williams, who lived near the school at the time. We're here at Lincoln High School in McClellanville, South Carolina, one of the area's hardest hit by Hurricane Hugo on September the 22nd, 1989. Joining me are three people who were here that night in McClellanville. Uh, Jennings Austin, who was the principal of Lincoln High School from 1983 to 1996, Charnett Moultrie Manigault, a sophomore at Lincoln High in 1989, and McClellanville resident Thomas Williams, who, as he said, lives just a stone's throw from the school. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal, folks. What we'd like to do is recreate the scene that afternoon and evening and into the early morning of the next day of September the 22nd. People have been hearing about Hurricane Hugo for days, and there was some evacuation, and then all of a sudden, the mayor of Charleston went on TV, Mr. Austin, and said, get out, everybody leave, almost run for your lives kind of tone. And Lincoln High School was a designated safety shelter. How many people were y'all preparing for that night, you and the Red Cross and the emergency services folks? We weren't preparing for very many people because we didn't think the storm was really that severe or would uh, get that many people here. We figured maybe 30, 50 people at uh, very most. We opened the building up around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and uh, very few people uh, came and then when the mayor uh, got on TV uh, around 6 o'clock and made his comment, get out, get out now, this is a Category 4, Category 5 uh, hurricane. People on the coast are really in danger. That's when the, the crowd really started coming in. And Ms. Manigault, that's when your family decided to come to the high school, wasn't it? That's right. Your mother and her friends were talking? Yeah, she um, spoke to a few on the phones, and she was back and forth from home to the school, and she saw a couple of her friends, so we decided to come over. And, Mr. Williams, you opted to stay in your house with your family, right? Yeah, since I'm so close to the school, I figured safety there to stay at the housing. So instead of 30 or 40 people, Mr. Austin, how many folks did you have? Between 800 and 1,000. We had people all over the uh, campus here in the main building, gymnasium, uh, band room, vocational building, uh, home economics building. Uh, they were everywhere. This, this is a concrete block structure built probably in the 1950s, wasn't it? Right, 1953. 1953, a, what we call a Jimmy Byrne school. Mm-hmm. And it's got a flat roof. Because of that, you've got to have air conditioning units, which were working until 9 o'clock, and then the power went out. And, Ms. Manigault, when you were in the, in, in, the, in the cafeteria with all those folks and the power went out, how did people, did people get scared, or did they, how did y'all feel? Yeah, at that time, we were scared because we could have heard a whistling in the wind. Was the building shaking at all? Were you feeling any, any motion at that time? No, not really. We could just hear the wind and the rain uh, hitting against uh, the windows. Uh, when the power went out, it really was kind of spooky in here because everything was kind of candlelight. We had one light down here in the uh, hall that was like a large flashlight. So basically the, the whole building was, was dark, exception of candlelight and uh, flashlights. Nine o'clock, the lights are out. Everybody's hunkered down, and then three hours later, the storm surge hits. They're still not sure how high the storm surge was, 10 to 15 feet. A massive wall of water came sweeping through McClellanville. Now, for our listeners need to understand, McClellanville is not right on the ocean. We're almost two miles inland, and that storm surge hits. Ms. Manigault, you were waked up just about midnight. Your mother woke you up. Mm-hmm. And why don't you talk about that experience when you were waked up? Okay, all I remember is when I got up, um, I looked at the door, and it seemed like a glass of water just spilled on the floor, that less water. And by the time we got our stuff and got the babies screwed and all that, water was up to chest. How did y'all escape the, the, the rising water? Where did y'all go in the cafeteria? We, we tried to, we, well, we walked out the cafeteria into the hallways and someone was trying to open the front door to get out, but the water pressure wouldn't let the door open. So we just came back into the cafeteria and stand on the stage until tide go down. So y'all, y'all until daylight, almost six hours, y'all were stranded on the stage. Right. And 
the water was so high, though, you had, you had those baby brothers you had to take care of, right? We had them in carriers, and the carriers were so heavy, you know, the carrier and the water. So we had to take them out of the carrier and let them, I just remember the carrier floating away, and I had to hold them up over my head to keep them from getting wet. My mother had one, and I had one. And Mr. Austin, what were you, you, you had an adventure in the middle of the night trying to get out, did you not? I was here uh, in the main hall uh, down on the lower end of the building, and I heard it was like a blood-curdling scream. Uh, some people were in this room that we're sitting in uh, right now, and uh, the air, the water pressure knocked the air conditioners out of the uh out from the wall and water was gushing in the rooms and then uh, as I walked on up the hall the water was coming in the hall all over the building and as Charnett said within a matter of minutes I'm six feet and water was up to my neck uh, in a matter of ten minutes. There's no way we could get outside of the building. Uh, water was higher up uh, outside of the building. I don't know if the water was 10 feet, 12 feet, but we could shine flashlights uh, up against the windows and we could see the water level uh, outside the building and the water pressure outside the building would not allow us to push doors open to get outside. So we were trapped inside the building. All the people on campus were trapped inside these buildings. 800 to 1,000 people trapped in this, this school. And what did you see floating by? You said... I saw a dog swimming by through the window. You saw a dog swimming by? Yes. And uh, car, cars floating by? Yeah, it looked like a junkyard out there. And Mr. Williams, back at your house... By, I think, 9, nine o'clock, 8 o'clock, I think most of these roads was already blocked. So nobody would make it out. But then after that, we heard the flow, you know, heard the air under the house, like that. And I stressed the air under the house. And the rug started lifting up. I said, oh, come on. I said, I'm, I'm, you know, because I had my house block around. Mm. I said, they must, that wind must have pushed that air van out. Then next thing we know, my wife said, the uh, jump on the water line burst. I said, how come? She said, look at water in the corner over there. I said, we ain't got no water back here. <laughs> and then that's when I, like, here we go, we ran to the door. And when I opened it, well, well, I couldn't open the door at first. When I did open the door, we got a no screen windows door. Mm-hmm. And the water was up like this. So I knew, and then I couldn't open it. If I, opened, if I could open it, I'd, we'd have been in worse shape. So I shut the door back and tell them, back to the kitchen, back to the kitchen. And when we ran to the kitchen, my kitchen is lower. Mm-hmm. And the refrigerator and the stove just pop up like popcorn. Blocked the door, couldn't get out the back door. So we went to the window. It wasn't no sense to try to open the window. When I opened the window, like I said, find flat. The water was already up. So we went on. I said, I'm high. Let's go up high. And that's when we went to the bedroom. I mean, water was, I mean, fast. The water was at our chest minutes. All right. That's one, that's one commentary that, that also seems so scary is that that surge just happened just like, just almost like you snapped your fingers. Yeah. One, one minute you saw like somebody spilled a glass of water. Right. And within a matter of several minutes, it's up to your chest, yeah. and and your your refrigerator and stove are popping up like you know I mean, just, like corks. I mean, I don't. I mean that that's just it's so difficult to imagine. It's also frightening. It's it's six hours of darkness, six hours of, of, of rising water, and then you've got the morning. Mr. Jennings, I know you were glad to see the morning come. Was the water beginning to go down? by six o'clock in the morning? Yeah, we could see where the water had gone down uh, substantially from the outside uh, by daybreak. Uh, But what was really the the most frightening thing for me besides the fear, and I think Mr. Williams and Charnette can say, this water came up so quick, we didn't know if it was gonna go five feet, 10 feet, 12 feet, we thought the water would possibly come up 20 feet, 18 feet, and everybody in this building would be drowned. That's what was going through everybody's mind. It just got up to a certain height and it stopped. But while myself and uh, the deputy sheriff and a fellow from EMS were up on top of the roof, it looked like looking from the roof down, it looked like water had totally consumed the main parts of the building. We actually thought that we would climb off that roof and find 800 drowned people. That's how it looked 
from up. Uh, and that was really the scary thing for me, sitting up there for five hours saying, my gosh, you know, what are we going to find when we get down? Well, it did, didn't in, in one section of the school they have to put children up, they not the... Uh, the ceiling tiles. Ceiling tiles. Uh, yes, and uh, the home economics room, which is the next building over here, and I believe in the band room, uh, they had tables and so forth, and water was coming in, and the people knocked the ceiling tiles out and put children uh, up in the, the ceiling. And that, as the water's coming, that that fear of not knowing how much higher how it's going to go, and the fact that you stop. couldn't you, you couldn't get out. I mean, you right. were mm -hmm. trapped in this right. in, the, in this this building. Gosh. But blessedly, that the water did stop and didn't. It reached a certain level and stopped. As the water's rising, you've got your family, your wife, your children. What was going on? What was going through your mind? Well, at first, I, after the water come start floating, in, well, I grab them, try to grab a mattress that was floating, but I couldn't pick it up because the water low at the time. So by this time, the water was coming up, and I realized that my neighbors, I thought they was gone. I thought they had already drowned. So and I had some cord. Uh, uh, telephone wise and I said well they can't swim and I don't want anyone swimming I said well I just tie each one we wrap the rope around the waist and then I wrap the rope with six of us and and even the doe even the little doe might have been about 12 1 o'clock I said well I told my wife I said well if the water keep coming because it was like, almost in the roof at this time which that's about 14 to 15 feet from off the ground and only one place was left, the, the roof, and it was coming up close. So at this time, I told my wife, well, I'm just going to tie the cord. Then I'll swim to the tree, and then I'll swim with y'all could just hold on to the rope and follow me, which the theory was to that. I knew I couldn't swim for six people or save but one. So the idea of tying us up was the idea that if, if one of us drown, all of us drown. If one of us go, all go. And we were just sitting there waiting for that moment, and, and uh, it never came through. And so at this time, I told my wife, I said, well, we can take the card off now because you know that morning was going down. But uh, rather, instead of me hearing them say, Daddy saved me, Daddy saved me, I don't know which one of the six I could have saved, and I wouldn't want to make that choice. So I figured all of you would go down together. I guess one of the most moving things was the next morning, though, when uh, around daybreak when everybody was able to get out or, or to walk around when I came down off the roof to find everybody that was alive and everybody in other buildings were, were walking around in waist-deep water. But we were totally oblivious to the water. Everybody was just so proud to be alive. I mean, everybody was just hugging each other and <laughs> laughing and crying. And I mean, it, it was that was one of the most moving uh, experiences that happened through the whole thing was that we survive everybody seems to be okay uh to heck with the uh materials around here we, we are alive jennings austin charnett moultrie manigo and thomas williams who lived through the massive storm surge at mcclellanville the night hurricane hugo came ashore recorded in 2001 this is walter edgar's journal and today we're looking back 30 years at the landfall of hurricane hugo in september of 1989 Ten years ago, while observing the 20th anniversary of that event, I talked with Dr. Susan Cutter, director of USC's Hazards and Vulnerability Research Institute, about hurricane preparedness and the response in 1989. One of the things that I know you and I have discussed in, in the past is getting folks out of the danger zone. Now, clearly the, the plans are much better now than they were 20 years ago. I think we are better prepared, but there's always the surprise factor. And the surprise factor uh, has to do with uh, human behavior. And not everyone believes the warning messages that they receive. And so you need to have a credible source for that warning information. And you need to have someone who can impress the public with the urgency of the need to evacuate. We also in South Carolina have a large influx of people moving to the state who have very little experience with hurricanes, and they don't necessarily know that they live in a high-risk area. They may be inland from the coast a little bit, which is just as prone 
to the hazards associated with hurricanes as someone living right on the beach. And they may not know. So the experience uh, could be a problem for many people. Also, as we found in, in 1995, everyone from Charleston gets on I-26 to evacuate, and I-26 was uh, clogged and didn't move, and no one knew the back roads to get away from the coast. And so we need to do a little bit better job of educating the population that lives in these high-risk areas of not only when to evacuate, but alternative routes. Well, on holiday weekends... 26 from 95 to Columbia is bumper to bumper. But, you know, if they're clogged on a just a regular holiday weekend, the idea of trying to evacuate all those folks still kind of boggles my mind. It does, but they're with the lane reversals, that gives you four lanes of traffic going out of the coastal areas. And as long as people don't leave all at the same time, it can be accomplished. Well, that, that's one thing that um, the emergency preparedness folks said is that there would be, for example, if there was something like a Hugo, and you, which they did want to evacuate the coast from the Savannah River really to the North Carolina line, they would do it sequentially so that the folks from Buford, Hilton Head, so forth, would start first. I think Hurricane Floyd, the southeastern states learned a lot from that experience in the notion of lane reversals and also in, in phased evacuations, as they call it. And they also learned the fact that instead of, if somebody has a three-car family, instead of just going in one car, they decide to take three cars. Right. We did some survey work after Hugo to find out what was motivating people to evacuate. And one of the things we found, which was that people took as many cars as they had drivers, and they were caravanning down the interstate. And this was contrary to a lot of the guidance and a lot of the um, modeling that's done in transportation, which assumes that people evacuate as a household and that it's, you know, two point whatever people per car instead of 1.0 people per car. And a lot of those folks were hauling their boats behind them on trailers. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess you can't stop people from doing that. But. I don't I don't think you can, although if you impress upon people the the urgency of getting out of harm's way quickly, uh, people may take heed with that. But for for many wealthy areas, uh, the amount of of money that they have invested in cars and boats is sufficient, mm -hmm. and they don't want to leave those behind mm -hmm. to be potentially damaged. Of course, for really big boats, they can't pull out behind exactly. a trailer anyway. <laughs> exactly. I think one of the other impacts that we saw with Hugo was the the effect on the Francis Marion Forest and the amount of debris that was generated. People tend to forget about the debris that's generated with hurricanes. What do you do with all the downed trees? What do you do with all the buildings that are damaged? And one little factoid that we found with our modeling was there would be 14 million tons of debris that would be generated if Hugo were to happen today. And that's a hard figure to get your head wrapped around. But if you look at it in terms of truckloads, garbage truckloads, mm -hmm. we're looking at about 45,000 truckloads of debris that would have to be moved out of the coastal areas. Now, you're talking not just tree limb, but you're talking about pieces of houses. Exactly. Furniture, any any debris that would have been generated by the storm. You have to go into a, a different mode on how you well, handle we, all of that What debris. are we going to do with 14 million tons of stuff? I don't know. I think some of it gets put in landfills. Some of it does get burned, but it's a, a controlled burn. We, we got we got enough barges to build a new, new artificial reef there off the coast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so you're dealing with evacuation routes, you're dealing with disposal. What about rebuilding? Is that part of what you're, you're modeling? We've, this particular model is just a, a damage estimation oh. model, mm -hmm. uh, but we have considerable experience on the Gulf of Mississippi where we're actually looking at the long-term recovery of coastal Mississippi in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina well, to see how long it takes communities to, to rebuild. What you see is a, a very interesting phenomena on the rebuilding and, and the recovery. And the, the question is recovery for whom 
and recovery to what? Because it's not the same as it was. And there are certain groups and occupations that that lag in recovery. And the shrimpers are a classic example of and. Part of it is the the transformation of an area after a hurricane. You look at uh, South Carolina, you look at the panhandle of Florida, people who had homes there who were able to rent apartments, when those homes and apartments uh, get wiped out, they don't rebuild in a way to support middle-income or lower-income populations. They support high-income condos, and build bigger and better and therefore more expensive homes. And of course, some place, I mean, Charleston's a much more beautiful place now than it was before the storm. Um, but more expensive also. But, well, it's, it's, it's more expensive, but in terms of uh, a lot of development that you see in other places along the coast, because Charleston has fairly strict zoning exactly. regulations, um, they didn't all of a sudden tear down the houses on the battery and build. 10-story high condos. And Charleston is actually one of one of the best examples of how to do it right, where you sustain the damage and you rebuild, but you rebuild sensibly, and you try and, and rebuild to your vision of what the city was and what the city should be. Mm-hmm. Well, what advice do you have for folks out there if another Hugo-like storm is headed for South Carolina? I would advise people to pay attention to what the local emergency managers are saying, to pay attention to what the state emergency managers are saying. They have the most current and up-to-date information. They are trusted sources. They're not going to tell you to leave unless there's a very good reason for you to do so. So in other words, if in Charleston, if Mayor Riley says it's time time to leave. You leave. You leave. If the governor says, or his emergency preparedness people say, if the coast from Savannah to Little River needs to get out, you move. You move because the the science of forecasting hurricanes has gotten better, and we can track them, we watch them, and no one wants to order an evacuation unnecessarily. And so it's the best judgment of, of people who are very, very smart who are making these decisions. And when they say it's time to go, you really should heed that warning. Emergency management is a very, very difficult profession because in in many cases, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And they always operate on the precautionary principle. And it's the precautionary principle suggests it's better to be safe than sorry. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, and you're just going to be inconvenienced for a couple of days. Well, it's better to be inconvenienced for a couple of days than to lose your life. That was Dr. Susan Cutter, director of USC's Hazards and Vulnerability Research Institute, talking with me in 2009 about preparedness and response to 1989's Hurricane Hugo. Also during that episode of the journal, we had a chance to talk with then-Mayor of Charleston, Joe Riley, about getting ready for and recovering from the storm of the century. One of the things in looking back at, at Hugo that seems amazing to to us today in the you know instant 24-7 on the Weather Channel is y'all didn't really have a whole lot of notice about Hugo 20 years ago, did you? Well, you know, we, we, we made ourselves aware uh, because we worry about hurricanes throughout the year and because we hadn't had a bad hurricane in a long time uh, and because Hugo was huge and uh and everything in its path was being devastated we were we were watching it you know we just had a sense to be very careful what kind of emergency plans did you all have in place in 1989 well we had a very good plan we we uh and we would you know uh, revise the plans every year and we would work on the plans every year and so we had a good a good organization and uh and and we knew what to do since we had not had a serious hurricane really in, in anyone's memory of uh, we had uh, Hazel and Gracie but but nothing like Hugo right. uh, I knew that notwithstanding our plans uh, that this was going to be something that no one had ever thoroughly contemplated nor had they experienced but one of the best 
uh, decisions I've ever made in my life was as we were watching Hugo, and uh, and this was probably uh, Tuesday or so, and it hit midnight Thursday. Um, I uh, asked uh, one of my fine staff people to call the Gulf because uh, they had had Camille. And I said, call to the cities down there and find out something they that surprised them. Find out some nugget, something that that wasn't in the plan. What what did they what did they learn that you know they'll never forget? And and within a couple hours, she came back because they all were eager to talk, and they all said. The most important thing is evacuation, and hurricanes kill people by rising water first, and that people will not leave because you said you should go. That what you have to do is you have to raise the the, the passion in your voice, and you have to uh, thread the needle between fear and panic. Otherwise, People won't go, and and I then changed, you know, my method of communicating about it. And and days after and years after, people would say to me, you know, Joe, we were having an argument in our house about whether or not to go. And one of us said to the other, "Did you hear Joe's voice? You know, there's something. He he really is." He is very concerned. We've got to go, and so that was that was important. Get people out, and just Walter. In terms of, of preparing, you you have the plans, and we've got even better plans now. And lots been learned about uh, emergency preparedness and incident command, all of which we have um, incorporated in our plans. But there's always a human element, and um, I told my people. It was probably Tuesday morning, my department head meeting, and I said, okay, we must see this. This was to my department heads and division heads. Said, we should see this as an opportunity, not something that we would ever want, but, but this is an opportunity for service of our, for our people when they need us most. We collect taxes. We have to regulate things. This is one time when people's lives and property and future is at stake. So let's let's see it as an opportunity to give the best service they could possibly get. Let's do the best job any community ever did in preparing for a natural disaster. And if we do, we will not only save lives, but we will create a feeling of pride and goodwill and appreciation and, and confidence that will stand our community in good stead for years to come. And, and that's what all of my wonderful people, we all kept that as our, you know, goal to just, and, and so then, just to tell you about the night of the hurricane, it took the roof off of City Hall, as you know, and, and uh, so the eye came right over City Hall. And we went outside, and, you know, it would be like the fury of hell before mm-hmm. then, just just loud, like a train, just running through the building nonstop, never letting up. And then the then the eye came over, and it's perfectly still. We went outside. You can see the stars. You can see how, understand how primitive peoples would have said, gee, we had this awful storm. Now let's go down the road and see, you know, Uncle Fred and Aunt Bessie and then get killed. Mm-hmm. So then I called the people in my office. And we'd had our police out, and we knew that we had done well, and it, no one had been, uh, die, no one had died by drowning in the city. And and, uh, and I said, okay, now you did, you've done the best job. No, no city has ever prepared as well as we did. And I thank you. And I said, now what we're going to do is we're going to do the best job any city has ever done in recovering. And we started our recovery right then with the eye, uh, quiet eye over City Hall. And, of course, all hell broke loose for five hours after that. But then the next day, you made a statement, which the then News and Courier published that uh, the city would not only recover, but it would be better than it had been before. Yeah. Well, I I came down the steps that morning after I'd been out. I went out as soon as the winds died down, and, and it was about the same time the light was coming 
uh, up. Uh, Some's coming up at um, 5:30, and um, and I saw what I knew no one, no one had ever seen in my city before. No one alive. Uh, a devastation that would be surprising. But I knew that my city had had recovered from from other hurricanes and from uh, earthquakes and and wars and um and that we uh, and we are strong people so that was my you know my commitment to my people to to be their leader during this time but that my confidence in them and in this great city that we would come back and so that was that was our uh, you know our goal every minute and every day after that to build back build back as quickly as possible and and that we would be stronger because if you you know a a city or civilization that that recovers from a disaster man made naturally caused um successfully is a stronger community or a stronger civilization that because there are there are the 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 opportunities for for people to look within themselves and to conquer you know the challenges of fear or or setbacks and um so that's and that's exactly what happened charleston is became more beautiful than ever it was more together there was more helping and sharing and there was also a sense of of capacity to do and to achieve that you know we we you know, we took the worst hurricane our city had had uh, in centuries, perhaps, and uh, and we built back, and we can do whatever we set our minds out to do. Folks came together, and Charleston became a much better place. Well, you know, the the human spirit is is so wonderful, and it it's in times of challenge that that it distinguishes itself and and that's what happened it was the giving and the sharing and people were weren't worried about themselves they were looking for somebody who was worse off than they were and wanted to help them and then the people coming from around the country and uh, you know and sending money or coming to cook food or just to help out you know and so many uh, alliances and and organizations started because of that people you know, people are good, and you can easily, you know, be self-centered uh, or connected through normal uh, ups and downs of life. And then when you have a, a big challenge, uh, just the goodness of people comes out, and then that inspires those who are connected, and they want to be, be better, too. I hate to say it, but Joe, but we're about to run out of time. I think we could go on and on about this, but I, I think people need to understand, Mr. Mayor, that in in terms of disasters, whether it's, as you say, man-made, natural, um, we think particularly of hurricanes, yeah. when your office speaks and goes on the air through the media and says, we need to do this, folks need to respond. I think one of the concerns that everybody has now is that there are so many people now living in the greater Charleston area who weren't here in 1989? We are, there are a lot of people who weren't here 20 years ago, so that's foremost in my mind. Each year is to, to make sure that, that I effectively communicate what's at stake. And we, we like, use our 104 neighborhood organizations and, and lots of resources that we didn't have the extent we have uh, now then. So... We're ready to to communicate the the need for people to respond, and the and the news media does a very good job on that. So when hopefully it's not this year, but when the next big one comes, we'll be uh, ever mindful of the fact that that people need to be reeducated or educated about the fact that people die from hurricanes because they stayed. Uh, people die because they stay and. Hurricanes kill people through rising water because they should have left a low-lying area, and that will be foremost in our minds as we go forward. Well, Mayor Joe Riley, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal, and we all hope and pray on this anniversary of Hurricane uh, Hugo that uh, you and your fine folks down there in in the emergency division, the police, the fire, 
um, do not have to face a natural disaster like Hugo any time in the near future. Well, that's our hope and, and, uh, and, and every prayer. That was former Charleston Mayor Joe Riley speaking to me in 2009, marking the 20th anniversary of Hurricane Hugo's landfall in South Carolina. Coming up on September 19th, South Carolina ETV's Palmetto Scene will take a look at the landscape of our state 30 years after Hurricane Hugo made a direct hit on South Carolina with reports on the timber industry, the agriculture industry, sea levels on the coast, and how we prepare for hurricanes three decades later. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.